A reading from Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. It's always good to be with you. Um, Covenant loves Red Mountain. And uh, we love uh, the gospel that goes forth here. um, And the nourishment that happens um, at this church. Um, We consider y'all, as Miles has already said, a sister church in the truest sense of the word. We're going to be looking at Psalm 3 tonight. Uh, The Psalms um, are not essays. I was reminded of that recently. Um, They're songs. And songs are different than essays. Essays are meant to primarily convey information. But that's not primarily what songs do. Songs are meant to engage our hearts They are meant to engage our experience to a fuller extent so that that our emotions and our our feelings um, are, um, when we look at the Psalms, that that we can be drawn into what the psalmist is meant to convey. Um, In the reflection uh, in the worship guide, Athanasius says um, that most of Scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. Um, The Psalms cover the whole of the human experience, the human emotional experience. Psalm 3 is a fairly unique psalm. It's it's one of only a handful of psalms where we actually know the context, the historical context, um, for why and, and the circumstances surrounding the psalm being written. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 13 through 19. I'm going to give a quick recap of that because I believe it helps us better understand where David is coming from and what David is experiencing uh, that he is writing about. Uh, David's oldest son, the heir to his throne, was Amnon. In Amnon, he becomes infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar, and he rapes her. Absalom, Tamar's sister, another son of David is enraged. And David is actually enraged as well. But David doesn't do anything. Absalom waits two years. And then he has Amnon murdered. Well, Absalom flees. He goes and stays with his grandfather because he knows he'll be safe there. And he stays there for three years. Meanwhile, David is grieving. The heir to his throne, Amnon, has been murdered. The next heir, Absalom, is in hiding. But after those three years, David brings Absalom back. Five years total. 
Two years of grieving, three years apart, David and Absalom are finally reunited. So Absalom is back with his father. He's back in the king's favor. And almost immediately he begins to conspire. He begins to conspire against him. He wakes up every morning. He goes and stands by the front gate of the city. And he speaks to the people of Israel who come with judicial issues. See, there was a, there was a seat at the, at the gate of the city where the king would sit to render judgment. And Absalom would come and he would take that seat. And he would say to each person, Your claims are good and right, but there is no one to hear you. Oh, that I were judge of the land, then every man with an issue would come to me and I would give him justice. And Absalom does this for four years. And we read in 2 Samuel 15 that Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. So once this has happened, he's stolen the heart of the people of Israel. It's time for the coup. It's time to overthrow David. The revolt is on and David flees Jerusalem with 600 men. He is cursed and taunted as as he leaves. He is spit on. Stones are thrown at him. And picture this, the king, humiliated, mocked with his life in grave danger, running away from the city. So Absalom comes in and he takes the throne. We know that Absalom had at least 12,000 men, probably many more. And we know that David only had 600. So here is the context. And if you want to look in your worship guide at the text, maybe now, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Maybe we can feel that a little bit more, what David is truly experiencing. He is a brokenhearted father. His son's heart is far from him. He is a king without a throne. He's been betrayed by his son, by his own people. He has been taunted as he's left the city. And he is in hiding, in despair, in fear for his own life, for his kingship, for his kingdom, and for his own son. So David looks around and he takes stock of the situation. Their numbers are more than my numbers. What if God has left me? What if, what if God's help is, is exhausted and there is no more? I think a lot of times in the Old Testament, um, when we read these narratives, it's really difficult for us to relate to them. Um, none of us are a king who've had a son overthrow us, but we've known despair. We've looked around and we ask, is there any help in God? We've been betrayed by someone that we love. We felt maybe not, we've not been in physical hiding, but we've been in other kinds of hiding from people because of what they've done to us. We've all been in hopeless situations. We've all said, this is not what I thought it would be. Maybe that's where you are tonight. You're in despair. You're in a hopeless situation with no way out, it seems. And we just want it to be over. Just make it stop. Get me out of this. And when I find myself in these situations, my 
knee-jerk reaction is to try to do whatever I can to move myself out of that. That I get fixated on a desired outcome. That my hope becomes in my ability and my resources and my strength. And I'm, I'm certain that David felt this way. I'm certain that people were telling David, you're the king, go rally your forces, go take your throne back. But God has David wait. He has David wait. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of waiting. I'm going to spend a few moments on that. Waiting, I don't know what that conjures up in you to even think about waiting, but it's frustrating, it's maddening. It can even be crippling. And everywhere that we look around us in the world, it says... Don't wait. It's all about instant gratification. There is no category for delayed gratification. Right? Get what you want and get it now. Right? Well, it can seem that in our waiting that God is silent. And for a time, He very well may be silent. But God's silence does not mean God's inactivity. God's desire is to meet us in the midst of the waiting. A couple of weeks ago, I was having coffee with a good friend of mine, fellow pastor, um, and he he's had a rough year, and he's called it a you know a dark night of the soul. Um, and he said that it never occurred to him that the very place that God might desire to meet him is actually in the midst of abandonment, fear, and despair. That it never occurred to him that the absolute best thing for him was to taste God in the midst of the darkness and the mess. But he goes on to say, but it's been in this waiting where my faith was forged. I'm more attentive to God's voice. My relationship with him has been deepened. My trust solidified. Simply, he said, I was being transformed in my waiting And God's desire in our waiting is that we would taste His goodness and His nearness to us. If you think about it, the story of the Bible is a story of waiting. We heard a little bit of that even in Larry's prayer. We will not fully get a taste of those things until Christ comes again. But if you think about the Bible is the story of the already and the not yet, that God's promises are already, but we're not fully experiencing them. Abram waiting for God's promise of a son. Israel waiting in Egypt for 430 years. Moses waiting 40 years in the wilderness. Israel waiting to enter the promised land. And I could go on and on and on about this waiting. But listen to what Chuck DeGroat, he's a, he's a pastor, counselor, writer. Listen to what he says about this in his book, Leaving Egypt. He says, we're a busy and anxious people who can't stand waiting. But God is committed to taking as long as you need to form you into the person that you were designed to be. See, expediency has become epidemic. I find myself easily irritated when I have to wait, whether it's in traffic or at a stoplight or in a line at the grocery store. I'm frustrated. This is me. I'm frustrated by YouTube video buffering or when my cable goes out. Or when there's no ATM nearby. 
or when my wife doesn't quickly return a phone call. Phone call. North American culture has institutionalized expediency. The quick and efficient has become an entitlement. Many of the struggles as a counselor that I see playing out in people's lives can be summed up as a failure to wait. Waiting is the Christian story. We wait on a God who says, just a little longer. Well, before we move on, I want to give a disclaimer and, and ask a question. First, waiting does not mean that you sit on your hands. Waiting means living by faith. It means acknowledging that we have a Heavenly Father who is caring for us and that He is active in our waiting. And then it is obedience. It is He may be calling us to action even in our waiting. So I say that to not confuse waiting with doing nothing. It It is living by faith. And so the question before we move on, Where in your life is God calling you to wait? And I think one of the things that Psalm 3 and many other Psalms give us the permission to do um, is to wait appropriately and to wait honestly. Because waiting can be done with grief, uh, can be done with longing, and the psalmists really give us permission Uh, to wait in a lot of different ways. So what does that look like for you? So here we are, David, he's probably in a cave somewhere. He's running from his life. He's outnumbered. He's being taunted that God has left him. Look at verse 3, David's words, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. You know, what's interesting here is David's prayer does not begin by telling God what to do or what he would like to see done. It doesn't begin by um, asking for a change of circumstance. Get me out of this mess. It begins by David reminding himself of who God is. Preaching the gospel to himself. And there's three primary ways that he does that. God is his protector, his sustainer, and his savior. He says, you, O Lord, are my shield, protector. This is the language here. This is not the kind of like arm shield that will stop an arrow or two. This is the kind of shield that you actually have to have another person carry for you. It provides complete protection. Nothing is getting through. That's the kind of protection that God provides He says, you, O Lord, are my glory. David's glory had been in his kingship. He clearly wasn't a very good king if his son is standing out at the city gate for four years in his place. David was shirking his duties just a little bit. He was glorying in his kingship. But he doesn't have any more power. He has no glory left. So he reminds himself that God is his glory. God is his security, his identity, where he finds his hope and his being. God is his help. And then he says, oh, you, you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. Now think about David's circumstance again. He's been betrayed by his son. His previous heir was murdered by that son. His people have rebelled against him. He's been taunted. 
David probably couldn't lift his own head, even if he wanted to. David probably couldn't have fixed his eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith, right? He couldn't lift his head. That's the bottom line here. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, you're going to have to be the lifter of my head. God had made covenant promises to David and those promises still remain. And He's reminding himself that he has God's approval. Even if everybody else's approval goes away, his sons, his, his people, his generals, that he has God's approval. But David is also, he is crying aloud to the Lord. Strong reminders of bold faith. And in that crying out, it says, God answered me from his holy hill. That word there, the the wording there, holy hill, that's where David was enthroned. Remember, David made, God made a promise to David that he was going to be king, but he had to wait. Right? He had to wait because Saul was king. Right? And so it was on that holy hill when he was enthroned that that was the fulfillment of God's promises. And so he's reminding himself again. God made these promises. He enthroned me on His holy hill. God's promises have been fulfilled. Even this circumstance cannot change that. Well, how can we be sure like David that God will answer us? How do we know that? Because it was on another holy hill, the hill of Calvary, where we got God's answer in Jesus. It was on that hill when Jesus cried out to His Father, And Jesus received no answer. And in Jesus' final words, it is finished. Everything that was necessary for you and me to be drawn into fellowship with God has been achieved by the person and work of Christ. Christ is God's answer to us. He also cries out to God as his sustainer. That's what he's proclaiming here. And, And David actually, again, remember the circumstance that he's in. He does the most remarkable thing. He sleeps. If there was ever a circumstance that you would think that would produce insomnia, this would be it. Right? And yet David sleeps. This is an incredible act of faith. And he's confident in the Lord and and His sustaining help. And... Sleep is deeply theological. Um, ask yourself, how, how do I approach sleep? Is sleep just, is it something that kind of gets in the way of your to-do list? Is it, is it something that um, you're resentful towards because it, it, it's a break in what you need to achieve? Right? Sleep for a lot of people is, um, they have a very resentful attitude towards it. But one of the most consistent acts of faith of everyday life is going to sleep. By going to sleep, you are trusting a God-ordained means by which you are meant to be replenished. You are also saying that there is something else that is more important than your to-do list. Going to sleep trusts God as your sustainer. It acknowledges your own helplessness. In His great sustaining help, even when you're asleep. God continues to work and sustain in our sleep. Look at that quote from Peter Craigie. 
in the reflection on page 1. After any sleep, there is cause for gratitude and trust. The moments of unconsciousness have ended and life resumes only because God is the perpetual sustainer. When we find ourselves in these situations of despair, of betrayal, of hopelessness, actually the hardest thing to do is to rest. Um, These things actually produce restlessness. Uh, I was actually having uh, coffee with a college student who had also had a rather tough year and is doing wonderful. And I just asked them, how are you doing? And they went on to tell me um, how well they were doing about how hard the past year had been. But they had gotten into this practice of any time they felt themselves despairing or fearful, that they would go back to something in the past year that had made them anxious, that had made them fearful. And they looked at all of the surprising ways that God worked. Never one of them had anything to do with kind of how they had scripted it. But they reminded themselves of how God was at work. And I think this is what David is doing here. A lot of commentators think that that David has been in this cave before. He's been in this hiding place before. Because David's life uh, had been in danger from another king, from Saul. And a lot of commentators think that David had all these little hiding places that he could go to. So he's probably been here before. And he's reminding himself of how God has acted in the past. He's reminding himself, I've been here and God has kept his promises. He has fulfilled his covenant. Well, after verse 6, David wakes up and he actually finds that his situation hasn't changed. Uh, One commentator called this the anti-prosperity gospel psalm because David shows incredible faith and his circumstances have not changed at all. There is no change. He's still waiting. But now David's fears are stilled. His faith and the trustworthiness of God has not changed his circumstances, but they have impacted his fear. For God is his protector, his shield, his glory, the lifter of his head. God has heard David's cry. He is confident that he will answer him. And that God is his sustainer so much that David could go and sleep. And then thirdly, God is also his savior. You know, David realizes he's got no move. He's got no strategy that he can go to. There's nothing that he as the king can do to rectify the situation. So he calls God God to action. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. All it would take is for the Lord to stand up and his enemies are vanquished. And this is actually the complete opposite of the taunts of his enemies in verse 2. Where they say there is no salvation for him in God, David is proclaiming there is only salvation in God. He is calling God to remember his covenant promises that God has made to him. And when God remembers, God acts. God moves. David is calling on God to render his enemies speechless so they can no longer scoff at God or taunt him. And then in the final verse, David shows his trust again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. See, David was 
tempted here to believe that God had left him, that there was no help. His enemies were saying that God would cease to help him even though he was the chosen king. And part of this is because David contributed to this situation that he finds himself in. Yes, David is the victim. Yes, David contributed to that. We can read over and over, David lost the trust of the people after the, after the affair with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered. There are other situations as well. And so what the people were saying is, David, you reap what you sow. Karma. It's finally come back to get you. And so what we see here is grace. We see God working in spite of David's unfaithfulness and disobedience over the years. Not even those things could thwart God's promises. And then David's final words are striking. He actually prays for his enemies. The very people, the very people who have rebelled against him, who have betrayed him, who have forsaken their king, he prays for God's blessing on them in the midst of their rebellion. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. That's what he did on the cross. He actually prayed for the he prayed for those who were in the midst of crucifying him in the in the midst of rebelling against him and he prays for us now even if we might be in the midst of rebellion but not only that but he also invites us to dine with him and that's what we're going to do in a few moments the lord's supper is a table for those who've rebelled It's a table for those who are weary, anxious, betrayed, fearful, abandoned. And as we come, God through His Spirit, based on the finished work of Christ alone, He gives us the rest that we so desperately need. Let us pray. Father, I pray that by your spirit that Psalm 3 would penetrate our hearts. That it would give us permission to be honest about the despair and the hopelessness, the abandonment, the betrayal that we might be experiencing. And that you by your spirit would also enable us to preach the gospel to our own hearts. That we would be reminded that you are our shield, you are our glory, you are the lifter of our heads. That you hear us, you sustain us, and that there is salvation in you, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, that we can never exhaust your grace, that you so generously pour out to us. In Christ's name, amen.